If I get tired, I'm going to sit down and rest since that's what we're talking about. <laughs> but I'm actually going to try, I don't have a stand to put this on, I'm going to try to record so that if I need it, I have a record of what I said. Uh, I have to say to you that I've been in some ways looking forward to sharing some of what I want to share with you today since last June. I did share part of it when I talked about Psalm 95 back in November. But uh, at least five times this week, I set out to do notes and they just kept getting bigger and bigger. So I'd start over and even sitting in the meeting this morning, the Lord showed me some things out of the passage that I hadn't seen before. And I don't have to tell you all that. That's not all for this morning. The trouble is, I need to know what is for this morning and what's for us and what's just for me to keep pondering. So, I don't want a perfunctory prayer, but I do want to stop and ask God that the Holy Spirit would direct my words and any conversation that we may have out of them. I personally know that for me this is a very significant word and I pray and I believe that it's significant for us as a people Father help among all the words that we might say we want to hear your voice today as it says right in our passage so, Lord, put a bridle on my tongue where it needs bridling. Bring me the word that you want for the upbuilding of this people, for the changing of our lives. Amen. In Hebrews 1 and 2, I wrote this part down. I wrote about everything down. That's usually me trying to restrain myself, but it certainly didn't work this week. In <laughs> uh, what we have read, some of it we've talked about, uh, God has spoken the greater word, greater than the angels, greater than any other, the greater word he's spoken through his son. The Son is God who's become man. The Son is the prophet. The Son is the king. He's the speaker of the word, the prophet. He's the king. He's the one with all the dominion. And chapter 2 ended up with him being a fitting high priest for us. The Son. This is not said in these words, but what chapter 2 is about, which we didn't look at in, at in detail. The son became the last Adam. He became the first man. Adam means man. The first man of the new creation. He shared our flesh and blood. He still shares our flesh. I don't know about blood. I don't know how the heavenly bodies are, but only he's already got the glorified body. He shared our flesh and blood, and he tasted death. Specifically, this is said in chapter 2, in order to defeat the devil who held the power of death. And 
which he's held us in bondage through fear. Jesus did that defeat. He had that victory over the devil and took the keys of death and hell. In order to rescue us fallen human beings and, and the creation, very important, and the creation from death and to present us to the Father as his sons and daughters. It's a lot of thought about going to heaven when we die. Well, we're going to be with the Lord when we die, but the kingdoms, the eternal kingdom's here. It's on a renewed heaven and earth. The city comes down, the bride comes down, and God sets up his throne among us, and he is the light, and he is the king of that city. And I don't know who they are or where they come from, but it's a city that we are the city, the bride, and yet there's nations going in and out of it. Let me tell you, there's things in Revelation I don't understand. But that's where it wraps up in that. It doesn't wrap up beyond the blue. It wraps up in the unseen realm becoming visible here in the people of God. Uh, the first man in the new creation was given dominion. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he now reigns as king. This is all in chapter 2. Because he became one of us and was tempted as we are, therefore he's able to be a merciful and faithful high priest. We start out in chapter 3 mentioning again this high priest. I'll just say this about that. Jesus as the high priest introduced in Hebrews 2 by the time you get to the end of chapter 4 it comes back to him as the high priest in between there is our topic for today we'll be focused on Jesus as the apostle as it says there in Hebrews 3 and the apostle, an apostle is one, uh, uh, one sent as an official me messenger with a message from someone else and especially from someone in authority. Jesus was sent as the word from the Father, as the message from the Father. He's the apostle, the sent one. And we'll talk about that in contrast to God sending Moses. <clears throat> we'll also talk about the fact that it is the voice of Jesus. He doesn't speak separately from the Holy Spirit. He speaks through the Holy Spirit sometimes. He speaks with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's the voice of Jesus that we hear, need to hear today as long as it is today. That'll be out in our passage. If we would hear his voice and respond rightly to him, then we'll be able to enter his rest. And the psalmist said they will not be able to enter my rest. His rest is what we're aiming for. And the Lord willing will take special note in the passage of the encouragements or the admonitions, whatever word you want to use for that, and the warnings that go with them. And I want to say this about them that right ahead. As I read this passage, I would like you to take note. These admonitions and exhortations are not for individuals. They're for individuals within a community. They're about interaction with each other, not just me. 
So you can note that and we'll come back to it. So I'm going to begin with chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read through chapter 4, verse 13. And then I'm going to ask the Lord out of what I've studied and whatever He wants to give me to help us to draw out the points that are His today. <coughs> Therefore, since Jesus is reigning and since Jesus is the high priest, remember we talked about a couple weeks ago how the thought in Hebrews just moves from thought to thought. Everything's built on something else. Therefore, therefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Just add this in here. What we read in 1 Corinthians 10 is exactly saying that, that those things that happened in the wilderness weren't just about the wilderness, they were there for us. That story is our story in preview. Okay. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me, and they saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See to it, brothers. This is first of those places, I won't point them out every time, but it's not addressing individuals, it's addressing the people of God. See to it, brothers, that there not be any one of you, in any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. We can't see to that in the people of God unless we know each other. This, this has to be committed relationships in Christ. See to it, that there not be any one of you in any one of you an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as when they provoke me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So that we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. I probably won't have time to come back to that, but I'd point out here that there's a parallel between disobedience and unbelief. 
He swore they wouldn't enter his rest, those who were disobedient, and they couldn't enter because of unbelief. That's something to ponder. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering into rest, any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. For indeed, we have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they also. But the word that was heard did not profit those who were not united with faith among those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere in this way concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who had formerly had the good news proclaimed to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again determines a certain day, a today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it had been said before, today, if you hear his voice. You have to think about this. Remember, David's at least 500 years after they failed in the wilderness, and yet David's still saying today, he's talking not to them, he's talking to his generation, and now he's talking to us today. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall into the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both the joints and the marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his side. You might ask yourself, what does the his go back to? You have, if you have a pronoun, you have to have a reference. What's the pronoun going back to refer to in this passage? There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. Is this a serious passage? You hear some warnings in there? You hear some urgency, not just in my reading, but I, it, it, I don't know how you can read this with any <coughs> thought and not hear urgency. There's so many things I'd like to say. We started out this morning with Psalm 95. And as Bill said, actually Bill, the whole psalm is a psalm of worship. It starts out talking about worship in making a joyful noise and bowing before him. But listening to his voice and obeying is what we do when we get there and hear before him and bow in his presence. So the whole thing is about worship. Sometimes we're willing to worship on Sunday, but the question is, what do we do with what he says when we leave? Jesus' ministry as an apostle, let me talk about that for a little bit. It's compared to the ministry of Moses. Moses, remember, 
was born among the Hebrews. He was raised in the palace, tried to take matters into his own hands and settle disputes, and he ends up running for his life, and he goes to the wilderness. And there he gets attached to a family, and for 40 years he herds sheep in the wilderness until he saw a bush on fire and not being burnt up, not being consumed. And then he had his today when he heard God. And what God said was, you're going to go back there to Egypt, and you're going to say to Pharaoh, let my people go, and you're going to lead my people out of that land of slavery. He was an apostle. He was sent with a message for the king and a message for the people. Let's go. It's time. Get ready. <clears throat> he was faithful to that. Jesus, like Moses, was faithful to the one appointed to him, we read. <clears throat> For the Jews, the Hebrew people, to whom this letter is apparently written, there was no greater man than Moses. I mean, they had Abraham as their father, but they wouldn't have been a nation if it hadn't been for Moses and the covenant and the law and the deliverance from Egypt. Abraham was great, but they had no greater than Moses. Moses was appointed and empowered by God, and he was a faithful servant in God's house. Under Moses' leadership, the old covenant house or the household of God gained deliverance, received God's laws, were formed into a nation, were led through the wilderness, cleared of the border of the land that was held by the Canaanites, the land that God had promised to Abraham would be the inheritance of his descendants. In Exodus 32, 13, this inheritance, this land is called their resting place. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. I spurs and ate an animal cookie and it's hanging up in the back of my throat. <laughs> it says there in Numbers 10, 33 and 34, they set out from the Mount of the Lord from Sinai, three days journey with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place for them. A cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. That first generation of freed slaves, we all know, or I hope you know, although they were seed of Abraham, although they'd been promised the land, after they refused time and again to believe and obey, God finally said in Numbers 14, you can read it, some translations are more graphic than others, but I remember one translation said you're going to die in the wilderness and your bones are bleached there. Other translations say their corpses would rot in the wilderness. That's not a pretty picture. But when God says you're not going to have rest, that's a scary word to hear. And they didn't enter in. Even Moses didn't get in. Not for the same reason as them. But we read in 1 Corinthians 10 that, that Christ was the rock that followed them in the wilderness. Early on in the journey in Exodus 17, they come up to Rephidim, and there's no water. You remember the story. 
And God said to Moses, this is where they start murmuring, complaining, and they're turning on Moses, and Moses crying out to God, and God says, go over there, and I'll stand in front of the rock, and, or I'll stand on the rock, and you struck, strike the water. Rock and water will come up. That's a pretty graphic picture. God stood on the rock, and Moses took his... How would you like to be told to swing your rod at God? But the rock gave forth water. Toward the end of the journey, they come to another place where there's no water, and the people are bitter, and they're rousing, and God says, go over and speak to that rock, and it will yield water. And Moses... I'm so sick of this. I said, speak to the rock, not strike the rock. See, the rock was Christ, and the rock only needed to be struck once for living water to come to everybody that needed it. That's the background that the Hebrew writer wants us to hear. The rock has been struck. The living water is available. Joshua received Moses' anointing and he led the men and established the tribes. And it says in Joshua 23 1, after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side. <clears throat> and then it goes on. But I wanted to have that line. They're arriving in the land with rest. Now somebody tell me about this place of rest. Didn't sound very restful, did it? It was guarded by some things. Giants. God did some of the battles for them, like the walls of Jericho. All they did was march and shout and shut up for seven days. That was probably the hardest part of it. Walk, march in silence for seven days. But God brought the walls down. But then they had some battles to face. They had giants to face. And even after that first generation that went into the land, died, God left some of their enemies there, to, and it tells us this in Judges, to see if the following generations would be fully obedient and clear out the rest of the land. The other reason he didn't give them the whole land is there weren't enough of them to, it would go wild on them, there weren't enough of them to take care of it, Exodus 23 says. See, it's their resting place, but it's also their working place. It's the place where they were to bear fruit. It's the place where they were to multiply children. It's the place where they were to represent God to the nations. Resting place. <clears throat> so, looking back at that, David says to his generation, listen, when God speaks, do it. <laughs> How many did any better following David's pointing them to obey God than they did Moses? Even Solomon failed before his years were up. He started worshiping the gods that his wife worshiped and building temples for. You'd have a king here and there. That would be righteous, especially in Judah, you have a few. And it's interesting, in Chronicles, several times, when you had one of those kings who got rid of the idols and stopped the idol worship and tried to bring back the worship of God, it would say, the land had rest. That theme is there. 
There's another theme in here that we need to hear about rest as part of this background. And that is, it points to the fact that uh, I got a Bible I'm not used to because it's laid out verse by verse and I want to be able to find it quickly, but it would help if I'd look in chapter 4 instead of chapter 2. Um, God has spoken somewhere in this way, chapter 4, verse 4, concerning the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day of one of the things I tried to bring out back in November was that there are a number of Bible scholars and some of this is on their own work but some of it's also ideas gained from rabbis in the time before Christ uh, in their writings uh, when God rested he rested from his work of creation but he took up his throne God re reigns in rest. And so when, he, when they built the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then later the temple, where did God's presence come to dwell? In the Holy of Holies, where you have the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, and above it, like the wings of cherubim. I'll tell you what Hebrews calls that. The throne of grace. God's throne is a mercy seat. We can come to God's throne through Jesus. I won't go there. That's some of the high priest stuff. But, but he took his resting place. So Psalm 97 talks about it. Psalm, especially Psalm 100. And, well, let me just... I should have a quote here. I think I did. But anyway, no, I didn't. That was in the other notes. Uh, but uh, Psalm 132, two times, talks about God taking up his rest in the temple or in the Ark of the Covenant. What does that mean? He came, he settled in to dwell among his people. He took up residence among his people and reigned as king among his people. Now that's Moses. I'm not moving fast enough, am I? I don't know. Daniel, we might have to finish this next week. The message is really important. One of the key issues in this whole passage is what is the word that was spoken? What message did he bring? Well, Jesus, the messenger, the apostle from God, brought the message of the kingdom, the good news about God's kingdom. And he's, Mark put it this way right at the beginning. Now, after John, I picked Mark because he's, his gospel is almost certainly the first one that was written. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is in. Repent and believe. So here's the word that was spoken. Again, to a Jewish audience who had been in exile under oppression for years. God's about to set up the kingdom. God's about to set you free. He's in hand. It's here. Turn from your ways and turn to God. Repent. 
What did the majority of Jews in Jesus' day do? If you study Mark like Asher and I did recently, it says it over and over again. They hardened their hearts, or because they're hard hearts, they couldn't hear him. That's just like their fathers. They didn't learn a lesson from the wilderness. They didn't hear what David had to say. And when the apostle of God, Jesus, comes, their hearts were hardened. And they rejected him. They refused to believe and submit to him and to the kingdom, to the word of God's kingdom. Now, after Pentecost, a number of them did believe. That was the essence of Peter's sermon. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made Lord and Christ. He's made him king. And a number of them were struck. They said, struck to the heart. They said, well, what do we do about it? Repent. Turn around. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What's, Paul, what's Peter talking about? He said, this is what the rest, this is part of what it means that the rest that they're offered, you have, your sins will be forgiven, you have a place in the kingdom, and God's Spirit will come to dwell with you and among you. All right. So, when they rejected Jesus, eventually, at the end of his, this is graphically, in a long passage, said in, Luke 20, or Mark 23, but in Matthew 21, after the parable about the vineyard owner who went on a trip and then sent back his, his servants and they killed him and sent back his son and they killed him. This was not just a story. This was Jesus saying to the Jews and the Jews that were there, Mark says, they knew what he was talking about. They knew he was talking about them. And what Jesus said to them was, therefore, kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. That's Matthew 21. <clears throat> they lost the kingdom. They lost God reigning among them. His reign had been fairly distant for several hundred years because of the hardness of heart, because of their disobedience. Even though many of them were scrupulously trying to obey, they were oftentimes missing it when Jesus came and tried to unfold. Well, this is what the law is really about. <clears throat> Kill it. So, to whom was the kingdom given when Jesus made this decree? is given to those who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and therefore confessed him to be Lord over their own lives and Lord over all. And so, what keys did Peter use on the day of Pentecost? Jesus said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. He preached the lordship of Jesus Christ and the door was open and everyone who would believe and repent entered the kingdom that day. We baptized. 3,000, it said. I want us to remember one other thing. I think I mentioned this back in November. I want to come back. This is very significant. That's part of what we're talking about. The kingdom is for those who hear Jesus' call, who hear his voice. Well, 
He'll speak in various ways by the Holy Spirit, various ways today. He still speaks. We still need to hear that voice. But listen to this one. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I, I think there's a whole different picture than what I heard the other day, and I didn't criticize the guy who said it, but it just stood out to me. He said, we got to pick up our yoke, which is, means pick up our cross and follow him. No, it doesn't say that. It says take it. What you do with a yoke is you receive it. No ox puts a yoke on himself. The farmer puts it on him. But the ox has to stand there and allow the farmer to put it on him. That's why it's easier for little children. You train an ox and you start with little oxen and you train them because you get a 2,500-pound ox there standing front of you. He's probably not going to stand still long enough for you to... <laughs> See. What's Jesus saying? Well, in the Old Testament, yoke is a symbol of government. He's saying, take my government upon you. Receive my kingdom. Live under my lordship. I'll give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls. For my government is easy and my burden is light. That's a comparative statement, by the way, compared to any other government. Doesn't mean it's always pleasant. All right. What's the nature of his government? What's the nature of his yoke? Well, Romans 14, 17 says the kingdom of God is not this. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Hmm. That sounds like a promise of rest. I mean, I mean, <laughs> it's a promise of rest. It's more than a promise of land. It's a promise that we can enter God's rest is what we're talking about here in Hebrews 3. What is God's rest? Well, I've talked about it three ways in the Old Testament. Let me say this. It's the rest that King Jesus has taken after he rose from the grave and showed himself for 40 days and ascended to the throne. And Father said, what? According to Psalm 2, and it's quoted many times in the New Testament, what did Father, or Psalm 110, what did Father say to him? Sit! And rain. You might have heard something like that before. As God took up his throne in the temple. Sit and rain until, until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus fought his battle. He's reigning. He's sitting. He's reigning. Until Father makes his enemies his footstool. And part of the way Father's going to do that, by the way, is we're seated with him in one sense, but another other way we're still walking it out. I'm going to Ephesians here. We're seated in chapter 2 with him in heavenly places. At the same time, chapter 4 says we've got to walk. And chapter 6, as you know, says we've got to stand and hold our ground. We've got to fight. Jesus did his. So what will happen if we stay faithful in the rest of his yoke, 
If we stay faithful in living in the kingdom, what will happen in the age to come? We'll sit and reign with him. On the earth is what, what it says in Revelation and, and also in 2 Timothy. I won't go ahead and quote them. So let me give you one other thing and then I'll hit on these encouragements and admonitions if we have time. Oh boy, shoot. Um, the reason Ephesians says we have to take up the armor and walk this out and have on the armor is because there's giants in our day too. Some of those giants are the spiritual things we face. Some of them in our role as a kingdom of priests, as a royal priesthood, are the things we're supposed to be praying that God would move the enemies out of the earth so that what's been decreed in heaven will happen on earth. All right. This is called winging it. Got all the notes, but I'm just trying to discern what the Holy Spirit wants me to say best I can. Um, now, these admonitions and warnings are not primarily about how you get in the kingdom. Uh, we enter the kingdom, it'll say later on, we are partakers of Christ, we've entered into his rest, and yet in his rest, we have to learn how to rest. So, let me just say some things. Jesus said toward the end of his ministry. They will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise and mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world. This is not something that any of us, whether you come from I, I just named two big, for evangelicals, Protestants, two big categories. Whether you're on the reform side of how you look at perseverance and election and all that, or whether you're on the Wesleyan Armenian side or somewhere in the middle, you kind of got to lay that theology aside, either side of it, to hear these warnings as serious as they are. Because these warnings are about you'll, you'll win if. There's conditions. So I don't know. Uh, I know one, one Bible teacher said these are about how you live in the kingdom, not how you, where you go after you die. I don't know about that. I put that in the Lord's hands. What I do know is this is serious stuff for us if we're going to be God's people right now. So... Verse 6, I'll just skip down through here. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. I mean, I like the idea of being God's family, his household, his people, the temple in which he dwells, which praises goes up, the living stones, all those images. If we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our... I'm not, I don't have time to press into our confidence and boast. I, I want you to... I'm trying to raise issues for you to ponder. Yeah. Verse 12. Take care, brethren. That's the exhortation to us. Be careful. Take care. 
Put yourself into this. Pay attention to what you're doing. So that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the unbelieving God. That's possible, apparently, for God's people, just as they did in Israel of old, have evil, unbelieving hearts. 3.13 Encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I'm not going to press that out, but um, I was thinking about that the other day. Sin is deceitful. When you get into sin, you've started pulling wool over your own eyes. And it'll get harder and harder and harder to resist sin because you, you, you know, oh well, the blood of Jesus will cover me. I can ask forgiveness. I'm not saying you can't do those things, but I'm saying sin is deceitful. And it'll get a grip. And it'll hold us. We become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance from to the end. There's this continuing factor. Yes, we believe we're partakers of Christ, we're in Christ, we're in the kingdom. But man, you work out the kingdom through trials, tribulations. If Jesus is going to be actively the king in my life, then I've got to be actively obedient and listening and walking in relationship with the king and with his people to accomplish his purpose on the earth. Active, not passive. Not, I did it back then, but I don't have to do anything about it today. I'll be all right. Verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, this is emphasized in here. How many more? How many mornings, not as many as I used to, do I get my Bible out and sit down to read? And I don't, I'm just reading, because that's what you're supposed to do. But how many mornings have I not thought, now what is God saying to me today? Not only in the scripture, how many times have I ignored the Holy Spirit when he's trying to say something to me? Today, not tomorrow, not yesterday. I mean, no, it's always today. Whatever moment you're in, that's today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like they did. What would it mean to harden your heart? Just not pay attention to what he said. Instead of obeying, Ignore it. Oh well, I'll get to it tomorrow, Jesus. You've never done that, but I have. But tomorrow never comes. Time it gets here, it's today. Alright? So, how did Israel provoke God? Those who were disobedient. Through disobedience, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let us fear while promise remains of entering his rest. If anyone seems to come short of it, there's the warning again. Asher, you may not always enjoy it, and I may not always do it. So I'm picking on you because you're my grandson. We can work it out later. <laughs> but if I see you where it seems like you might be drifting off, I don't come to you. I don't need to come to you and harsh thing and a judgmental thing and say, 
Now, there's times when I need to do that if I see a sinner. But if it even seems like it, I need to come and say, Hey, Asher, something going on in your life? We kind of had a moment like that recently, didn't we? That was of God. He wasn't doing anything bad, by the way. It's just the fact that the Lord's laid on my wife and I, his heart, a concern, and, and it's asking if there was something he was struggling with. That's this. That's what it's talking about. Being sensitive to, to help one another. We don't want anyone to come short of it. I don't want anyone to come short of it, but to go all the way. They had the good news preached to them, but it didn't profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Now, verse 2 and 3 of chapter 4 says it plainly. We've had the good news preached to us. We, have, we who have believed have entered that rest. We've entered the kingdom. We've got to live on the kingdom. Man, I, there's more here. I haven't even got through them. Verse 6, since it remains for some to enter, that's the admonition and encouragement. Those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter. No. He again, that's God's mercy. That's what it is. God will oftentimes speak again. They failed to enter. God didn't just deal with them once. The first time they murmured and complained in the wilderness, God didn't say, Ten times they murmured and complained, and then finally they refused to go into the land at all, and that's when God said, okay, I'm not going to bring you in against your will. Die out here in the wilderness. Okay. Now, I want to... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What are we talking about, the Sabbath rest? God rested on the seventh day. I think there's, just to give you these to think about, I'm getting close to closing here. The rest of God in Christ is the rest that we enter into. God quit working on creation. When we quit trying to do the works of the flesh, when we quit trying to work it out for ourselves, when we quit trying to make a name for ourselves, when we quit trying to save our own lives, as Jesus said, he who saves his life will when we surrender the old man and die and are reborn we enter into the kingdom we enter into rest it's also a rest that like for Israel had to be worked out in the midst of enemies so there's a pattern of life on earth that Jesus set the stage for and the apostles went out and proclaimed the way of the Lord in order to abide and live in the rest of God, we have to learn God's way of life. We have to learn the pattern of life. We have to live the way God lives. Some people want to believe God and live like they always did. Can't do that. Got to learn the way if you're going to have rest. And then there's the rest that's promised us in the age to come. Again, a lot of the rabbis going up to the time of Jesus began to even talk to Jewish people about every Sabbath they had. How many know they had more than just the seventh day? A lot of the feasts started with the Sabbath and some ended with the Sabbath. 
said all the re all the Sabbaths are not just about not working. They're celebrating and anticipating the day in the age to come when God's purposes are fulfilled. That puts a whole different complexion. There's a greater rest that's coming. So if we endure, we will reign with him. Revelation 5, you've made them be a kingdom and priest of God and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 22, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the heavenly Jerusalem and his bondservants will serve him. If you thought that rest meant not doing anything, then you didn't read Revelation 22. Alright? Alright. Now I want to come to this last one. Here, you might want to fuss with me if that's alright. I hesitate to say this because it's so arrogant and it was said as a joke, but in a sense I'm not joking right now. Bob Mumford said I can't help it if I'm right. He meant it as a joke. But I want to submit something to you that I honestly believe is right. Most people, when they read this, the word of God is sharper than two-edged sword. How do people define the word of God? What would they say we're talking about? Don't they? I don't believe that's what they're talking about here at all because in the next verse, the pronouns... His refer back to a person, not to a book. Now, I'm not putting down the book. He's the word spoken from God. He's the message from God that we dare not neglect. He's the one that if we hear his voice. So let me just put some things I wrote down yesterday. Uh, this word, the word of God, and I looked it up in Greek because I wanted to see if it was the same as, as in John, and it is. Logos to theu. The two is means the and it goes with the logos. It's reversed like you do in Spanish with the article. Logos to theu. The living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword is the logos to theu, the word of God. Here in Hebrews, it's the word which God spoke in his son in one two. This word of God is the word spoken through the Lord and confirmed by eyewitnesses and backed up by God's testimony and signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. This word of God is the message of good news that Jesus the Apostle brought, declaring that God's kingdom is near, so repent. This word of God is the one who was in the beginning with God and who was God and who created all things, John chapter 1. John 1.14, this word of God is the Logos, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, bearing the glory of God, full of grace and truth. This Logos of Tutheo, this word of God is the one who at the feast of Jerusalem did not entrust himself to men because he knew men, and he didn't need anyone to testify concerning him, for he knew what was in man. Think about verse 14 here. Logos Tutheo is aware of what the scribes were reasoning in their hearts and he, called, and he called them out for those thoughts. In the instance of the guy being let down through the roof in Mark 2 and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven and they're saying, reasoning among themselves, who is this? And Jesus read their mail. He's the one who knew Simon's thoughts when the woman who was a sinner came into the Pharisee's home and began to wash Jesus' feet with tears and wipe them with her hair and anoint his feet with perfume. 
This is the word of God who knew without hearing it that his disciples have been arguing about who was the greatest in Mark chapter 9. This is the word of God, the Logos Tutheu, without being present, knew what Thomas had said in a locked, closed upper room one Sunday, one first day of the week, and the next week he came in and responded to what he hadn't been there to hear. Physically present. Jesus is the Word of God who's alive, and He's the one who acts, and He's the one from whose mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, Revelation 1.16. He's the one that speaks the Word of God that pierces the heart. Today, if you hear His voice. Now, oftentimes, maybe most of the time, this is where He speaks from. <laughs> he can speak by the Holy Spirit. He can speak through Balaam's ass. But when he speaks, we better hear his voice. See, in Isaiah 49, this is one of the servant songs. I won't read the part about the servant, but go back and read it. He says, listen to me, O islands, pay attention, you peoples from afar. Did you hear those words? Listen, pay attention. Today, if you hear his voice, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. I could go on. Why, why am I emphasizing that? Not to make a theological point about the Bible, but to say we live, serve a living king. We serve one who knows our hearts, who knows our motives, and knows our, our attitudes, and knows who we are, and knows what we need, and knows what we can do, and what he wants to do through us, and he will speak to us and let us know today if you hear his voice. What's the key to entering his rest? Hear his voice. And do what he says. Believe and obey. Oh God, it's, he's the one whose words pierced clear to separate between the soul and the spirit, between my mind, my will, and emotions and that core being that relates to God. He can even separate between the joints and the marrow pretty hard job it's he verse 14 who's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart and it's he of whom it says there's no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account young people old people too you may get by for a while without your mom and dad seeing it. But Jesus sees everything you do. And he not only sees what you do, he knows where your heart is. Back in that passage from, from Isaiah or from Psalm 95, it said, it didn't start with unbelief. I forgot to emphasize this. They went astray in their heart. What is your heart set on? What is my heart set on? If my heart's set on him, then I will hear his voice and I'll do his will. If my heart's set on me or if my heart's set on some activity or some person,
So this morning we have one more opportunity. If you haven't done it, Jesus has opened the door to the kingdom to us. He's here. Get under his yoke. He's going to link you up with some people you may not like. But oh boy, will you have a worthwhile life accomplishing the purpose you were made and redeemed for. And one of these days the yoke's going to come off in that sense and we'll serve him in a different way as we reign with him forever.